Well, good morning. <laughs> Welcome to the Christian Church of Essence Park. We're disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus. I'm so happy that you're here. Well, thank you to uh, Thomas and Matthew and Cody for those great announcements that they did for us today. And a couple of things you saw on those. Uh, if you missed any of those announcements in your uh, program there, there's a yellow sheet that has all of those that are also written. Um, and uh, just some updates on things. They did mention a gift for our fathers. Happy Father's Day to all of our dads. So, And, uh, you know, Father's Day is usually one of our most lightly attended Sundays all year, and that's kind of sad. But for the dads that are here, well done. You know, leave your family. That is awesome, and I think that's fantastic. We do have a gift for you. And uh, what we got for you is this. It's a compass for your dads, and it's not digital or anything. It'll work even if the power goes out, because we know that sometimes as a dad, uh, you never know if you're coming or going, right? Life gets so busy, and it's good to make sure that we stay in the right direction. So we, this is a, a nice little compass for you. Those are in front of Chris's office that are out there. And also, our church picnic is today. We usually do that on Father's Day, our annual church picnic. But uh, the weather decided not to play nice with us, and I know it's going to start raining here fairly shortly, around noon, I, I believe, and downpouring. So we're moving the church picnic here. And so after the service, if you can help me kind of clear the chairs out, we'll set up some tables and uh, we'll have us like basically a potluck and we invite you to stay and enjoy uh, to be part of that. So those are all the answers I really have. But uh, today we are starting our, uh, our series in Acts. We're getting back into that. This is our third part of Acts. Uh, we've broken up the book of Acts into three major movements. And if you missed any of those, the previous ones, you can find them on our website, funchurch.com. But today we uh, it's the final uh, really portion of Acts. Uh, Acts 1 was how the new kingdom come, how the kingdom of God the, really began, uh, how the church started. And Acts chapter 2, the march of the kingdom, which you went through this last march, is how the kingdom really expands. In this last portion, we see how the kingdom of God overcomes all kinds of obstacles, everything that stands this way. And why is that relevant? Have you ever hoped or wished that uh, you look at the culture around us and said, you know, or we want the, the, the faith. It seems like there's, uh, there's so many things that stand in the way. We, we want the faith to, to make a difference, to overcome all of these things that are destroying families and, and society and lives. You, you get to a point where you start praying, God, make your kingdom come. You know, the kingdom of God doesn't just come, it overcomes. And over the next uh, few weeks, as we go through chapters 15 to the very end of the book of Acts, You'll see how the kingdom of God historically is designed to overcome times just like these incredible things. And that's what we'll be focusing on. Now, uh, as we go through every series, we always have a memory verse that we attach to that series, something as a theological anchor for us. Usually it's part of what we're studying. And for this series, our memory verse comes to us from Acts 20:24, 20, And this is the words of the Apostle Paul and uh, something that really is really the foundation of how the kingdom of God overcomes. And part of it is the mentality of the believers of Christ. And this is what Paul said, that I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now that is a difficult passage because there's lots of words, but also what it says, isn't it? There's a high, uh, there's a, there's a high call to what we were, you know, what we, we were meant to be. And uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? So what we want to do is take some time and let that Word of God begin to steep into our spirits, into our hearts and our lives, right? And uh, this is really a foundation that you see how God calls His disciples, what He calls us to. And so to do that, um, I'm going to invite you. We're going to say this a uh, few times. And so as we say it, um, don't just memorize it. Start to set it to your heart and your life. But then we'll give you some tools as a way to be able to let that uh, marinate in the Word of God so it prepares us to be the kind of people 
the kingdom of God that doesn't just come into this world, that can overcome this world in Christ's love. I'll tell you, the hardest part that I had in selecting this passage, and I, and I doubt, and Amy will, can confirm this, that I, I, I was really tempted not to pick this one. Why? Because of the first sentence. I consider my life worth nothing to me. And I'll tell you that I can't say that honestly, right? I, quite honestly, I, I really value my life right now, right? And so there are times where I would like to be like Peter or Paul that would just follow Christ to the end. And yet I know that at this particular time in my life, when God tests me, I tend to get selfish occasionally, right? But I also know this, that Peter and Paul, Paul wasn't able to say this early on in his life. This is a, a verse that came in Acts chapter 20. This is what God did through the Apostle Paul and taught him how to follow the Lord, a transformation that God did in his life so the truth of God's word could come out where Jesus said, listen, if you want to have life, you want to keep your own life, you're going to lose it. You live for yourself, you're going to be lonely and miserable and it's never going to work. But if you want to find real life, you've got to lose your life. You've got to live for me and then you're going to find real life. That's the way I want to be. And that's where I'm setting my heart to be. And so I picked this passage because this is the heart of a disciple. And so we begin by memorizing it, praying over it. When, I, when the selfishness comes, right, as uh, people get in front of me in, in the cars when I'm driving out of the church, right, and it's my kingdom versus theirs, and I start to get angry, I consider my life worth nothing to me. The Word of God comes and it reminds me, convicts me, and I say, God, this is what I want to be like. Right when I go home and you know and I want to just rest and, and there's work to do at the house and I want to have my kingdom and I want it to be about me and I want to be comfortable. I consider my life worth nothing to me. It gives me an opportunity to lay down my life for my family. The word of God helps me, convicts me, gives me something to pray for. This is the word of God, and I will encourage you as we begin this passage, start letting it work in your heart and your life. This is a tool, and then you can begin. Uh, letting it, as you begin memorizing it, meditating it, the Word of God will be there. It'll help to start shape you and change you. And this is the foundation for a church that overcomes. Now, with that, let's turn our Bibles to chapter 15, which is where we're going to begin this, this whole series, right? Starting in chapter 15. And as we get to verse cha- or chapter 15, as you're turning there, it's going to be on page 770 if you have one of our Bibles. If you forgot your Bible today, don't worry, got you covered. We've got some there by the sound booth. You're welcome to use one of those. And if you need a Bible, keep it. It'll be our gift to you. Now, as you're turning to chapter 15, some things are going to be referenced in chapter 15 that, uh, that I'm going to give you some background on so that way they make more sense. Now, uh, before chapter 15, there was chapters 9, 10, and 11, because that's how chapters work. And in chapters 9, 10, 11, something amazing happened in the church. This is what happened. You have Peter, the apostle Peter, goes to Joppa, right? He's, he's going there. There was some persecutions happening. He goes to Joppa, and he's helping the church, you know, the gospel expand. And at that point, the church had really only reached Jews. But as he's in Joppa, he's there. God meets him on roof and gives him a vision of a really weird church picnic, right? A sheet comes down, a, a, a picnic blanket comes down from heaven. He's seeing this happen, and on top of the blanket aren't a bunch of really good kosher meals, right? It's not gefilte fish. It's something different, right? What's on there? BLTs, lobster tails, snake, right? And uh, it comes down before him, and he's like, this is not what I ordered. And God says, take and eat. And Peter's like, uh-uh, no. I have never done, I've never let unclean, not kosher food touch my lips, and I'm not going to start now. And God said, do not call 
unpure, what I have called pure. Take and eat. And Peter's like, yes, sir. So it happens three times, so he gets the point. And then the vision stops, and he's sitting on top of the roof going, what was that all about? And just then a knock on the door, and then he goes down. Well, who is it? Oh, it's Roman guards. Uh-oh, because that's normally not a good sign. But what do you want? We want Peter. Why? Because there's this guy named, he's, he's, he's a centurion. His name is Cornelius. And an angel met with him and said to get Peter. Come with us because he's got something to tell Peter. Well, Cornelius, he was a, a God-fearing Gentile. And a Gentile that knew that God exists, just didn't know how to follow him. He was, a, he was a, a guy who wanted to be right with God, but he didn't understand the gospel. And so God met him, sent an angel and said, go get Peter. Peter's going to explain the gospel to you. Peter goes to this Gentile's house, this leader of a of Gentile Roman army, goes in, shares the gospel with him. And what happens, what's amazing, is that the Holy Spirit shows up in the exact same way as it showed up on the day of Pentecost with all of the Jews who were, they became Christians. The exact same way. Tongues of flame, people talking in different languages, all kinds of cool stuff. Shows up, and Peter, all of a sudden, he puts a connection between that vision. Like, God's accepting the Gentiles too. He's called them clean now. Who knew? And so he says, well, now they're believers, filled with the Holy Spirit. They're part of it. What keeps us, prevents us from baptizing them? What prevents us from having to the, the community? Nothing. And so they baptize all of these Gentiles. They don't make them Jewish first. They baptize them. They're believers. And so this was huge. And the church at the time, which was based in Jerusalem and was mostly Jewish, said, wait a second, Peter, what are you doing? This is a Jewish Messiah, right? Jesus is, is a Jew, a Jewish Messiah for a Jewish people. If you start bringing Gentiles in, shouldn't they be Jewish first and they part of our community so that way they can enjoy the benefits of our Messiah? I think I'm unplugged. Am I unplugged? Okay, I think I'm good. So he said, no. Uh, what they had, oh, that's horrible. I am so sorry to do that to you. What can I do to fix it? I will try my cord again. Mm -mm -mm. This is embarrassing. All right. If that doesn't work, I'm going to get a microphone. I'm going to get a microphone because I'm not going to do that. That's horrible. It was weird, and all of a sudden, I realized that God had, and, and, and so uh, I went to Cornelius' house, and then we, we baptized them, and they became Christian, and the Holy Spirit showed up, right? And so God accepted them, and when the church recognized that the Holy Spirit had accepted these Gentiles, they said, well, if God accepted them, who are we to reject them? And so at the time, in chapter 11 of Acts, the church has this, this first meeting, and they say, listen, we are going to uh, follow uh, what God has done, and we're going to accept Gentiles. They don't mean to become Jews. They were just Christians. And so that's what happened five chapters, four or five chapters, before we even get here. 
right? And in between that then, we find Paul goes on his missionary journeys, brings a bunch of Jews and Gentiles to faith, baptizes them all, all kinds of great things were happening, right? Ten years basically pass. That's where we begin in chapter 15. In chapter 15, I'm just going to give you an overview, and then we're going to get into some stuff that ha- for us in there. But the overview, it begins with, there's trouble in the church. And where's the trouble in the church begin? Well, you have some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem go up to Antioch, which was the other capital of the church, basically, at the time. Right? There was the Jerusalem and Antioch. Antioch, mostly Gentile Christians. And these Jewish Christians went up to Antioch, uh, you know, and they said, uh, listen, you Gentile Christians aren't really Christians. You're like second-rate Christians, if, if at all, because you haven't been circumcised and you don't follow the Jewish law, and you need to do that. Now, that's against what the church had already decided several chapters earlier, but they went in and they started doing this, and they started causing some of these, these Gentile believers problems. They're like, am I really a follower of Jesus? I don't know. Do I have to become Jewish first? Right? Do I have to? They, and so there was a problem in the church. That's how it starts. And so the church responds in a very good way. See, when there's division in the church, it needs to be, needs to be fixed. Right? So instead of covering it up, instead of just like saying, well, you know, we talked about that before. No, the church does something amazing. They call a council. Right? It's called the Jerusalem Council. And so there was those two capitals of the church at the time. You have Jerusalem and you have Antioch. And so Jerusalem, you had uh, Peter and all of the apostles that kind of were, were there. And then in Antioch, you had Paul and Barnabas were kind of up in there. And they said, let's get the leaders, the elders from these churches together. Let's solve this. Let's talk it out. So they do. And that's where we find that they kind of get together. And so uh, in this, uh, they begin uh, meeting. And in their meetings, they, uh, they say, uh, listen, we... Uh, we want to hear what the problem is, so they invite the, uh, the Jewish Christians that had the problem. And it says in the word there that these Jewish Christians who had the problem were from, they were previously Pharisees. Now, as a Christian, oftentimes we snub our nose at the Pharisees. We're like, oh, Pharisees, right? That's usually, it's like a slur in our, for a legalistic kind of person. But I recognize that the Pharisees were a group of people that the pharisaical kind of movement began after the, the second temple got built, right? And, and they were like, listen, we will never let our temple get destroyed again because we disobey God. And so there was a sect of, of Jewish followers who were really strict in their observance of the law, right? They said, we want to follow God his way. We're going to do that, like everything he said. They were so strict in their observance of the law, they wrote laws around the law so they wouldn't accidentally violate the law. It's like you putting a fence around your yard so that your neighbor doesn't accidentally trespass. And they were so good about that, they built another fence outside of that first fence, right? That they wrote these other laws that they had to follow. So they didn't ever want to violate God's standards. They were committed, And you have some of those Pharisees who become Christians. They accept the Messiah, right? But their entire life was given to following rigorously the law. And so it's hard for them to accept the fact that you're saved by grace. And so they have this, and they say, they go before the the early church, the the council, and and their their issue was, they said, listen, we want to to make sure that our faith is pure. And we're going to do that. We understand you're saved by God's grace through faith. Yes, we want to add two things to the gospel. Two things you want to add is you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the law. Basically, you have to become Jewish in order to be a Christian. And it says in there that the early council, it says that they listened to them. 
Now, granted, this was already five chapters before. It had already been decided. But no, they listened to them. And we get in there. It says uh, they considered the question. Verse 7, after much discussion, it wasn't as though they blew this over. Right? They, they really listened. The apostles wanted to get it right with prayer and really study and say, what is, what is God's doctrine on this? And after much discussion, after it was thoroughly debated and understood, then you have three different men stand up. And the first one is Peter. And Peter addresses them as the representative of the Jewish church, right, from Jerusalem. And he stands up and he says, listen, we can't add to these, these guys, uh, uh, the Gentiles, a burden that we ourselves can't live up to. Says there's a gospel we can't add to it, and so we're gonna. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You don't have to stop being a Jew to be a Christian. But if you're a Gentile, you don't have to start being a Jew. God calls all people, and that's what He started with. And so Peter says, "Remember, I had that crazy vision of a picnic. Remember what happened with Cornelius. This is a work of God. We need to trust it." After you have Peter addresses the church, then you have the leaders of the church at Antioch stand up, and that's. Paul and Barnabas. And they stand up and it doesn't tell us what they said. It just says that, that they basically agree with Peter. And as they were speaking, all the other uh, Christians that were there were, were just wrapped in attention. They're like, wow, right? And they said, yeah, they agree with him. And then finally, you have uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who is pretty much the de facto leader of the whole church. He stands up and he gives his, uh, his explanation as to what happens, right? And he says, basically, guys, um, we're not going to add another burden to the, to the Christians. That's not, you know, to the Gentiles. And so once they have that uh, decided, then they send out a letter, and they send this letter out to all of the, the churches there so it makes sure that uh, everybody knows what it means to be a Christian. You can see what's in that letter. It uh, starts in verse 23, and this is the first official letter of the church to the church. And it says this, it says, The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed and chose some men to send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements, that you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Very simple letter. And it says that after this, they said, we're going to send that letter out. And then as it went out, everyone who heard it, the church was happy. It brought unity. And when the church works, works the way that's supposed to, the, uh, something that could have divided the church and caused all kinds of animosity, instead brought unity. And then after that, the last part of this chapter, then Paul and Barnabas, who had been, came, just came back from their first missionary journey, right? They say, hey, there's a bunch of churches that we started up there in the other part of the rest of the empire here, and they need to know this because there's Jews and Gentiles and all of those. And so they say, let's go and bring this letter to them. And so they're making their plans to go there, and they have a disagreement about this guy named John Mark. John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, was also a, a relative of Barnabas. He was also a member of the first missionary journey, but he quit halfway through. And that was the point of contention. 
John Mark, this young man, got about halfway through, and for whatever reason, he says, I want to go home. So he goes home. And so now when they, they want to start up the missionary thing, Barnabas says, hey, let's bring John Mark. Give another try. And Paul was like, uh-uh. You know, you the definition of crazy? They're doing the same thing. Expect us a different result. I'm not crazy. The kid can't do missions. I'm not going to bring him with me. And Barnabas is like, he can, and we're going to give him another try. So they disagreed sharply. So instead of becoming enemies over this, he said, let's, let's each go our own way. Barnabas, uh, you can take John Mark, and you go on a missionary journey with him. And I'm sure Paul was thinking, and let's see how long that lasts, right? And then Paul says, all right, I'm going to take Silas, one of the men who was sent to be with this letter, came with the authority of the church, and I'm going to go a different route. So uh, Barnabas and, uh, and, and Mar- John Mark, they ended up uh, going directly east into the island and going out that way. Then you have, uh, uh, you have Paul and, uh, and Silas. They end up going more north, right? But they're going to spread this message to the church. That's what they're going to do. And thus begins the second missionary journey of Paul. And then we'll be covering that the next few weeks. That's what happens in this chapter. Now that we have the chapter summarized, that you can see what happens there, I'm going to talk about three very important uh, things that we learn in this chapter, right? Three very, very important lessons. And the first, and all these lessons really come down to what does it mean, the importance of a church? What's the foundation, right? If we're going to have a church, it needs to be a healthy church, mean a right church. And it's just like, as we begin that, it's just like when you go to the store and you want to get something healthy, Right, you turn the can around. It might, it might look pretty on the front, but you turn the can around the backside or the thing, and you want to check the label. And something that you want to see on that label, if it's good, it says this: nothing artificial added. Right? If you want to have something pure, and that's what this chapter is all about. What is the faith like when there's nothing artificial added? Right? And there are three areas in which we see that the church was to have nothing artificial added. And the first one is this, as it says, we don't accept artificial authority, right? The church begins with that. We can't accept artificial authority. Uh, Remember the problem that they were having in Acts 15? Where did it begin? It began by some Jews who were in Jerusalem or that area, went up to Antioch without the authority of the church, and they started all kinds of problems, which is why in their letter, the first church letter, they begin with this. Some men went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you and troubled your minds by what they said. These Christians went to Antioch without the authority, but they spoke with authority and they caused all kinds of problems, didn't they? Now, when they went, guaranteed they thought they were right. They thought the church had missed it since chapter 5. They thought they got it wrong. That really, that you need to be Jewish in order to follow the Jewish Messiah. That's what they thought. And so they went and they thought they were on a mission from God, making sure the church would be healthy. And what happened? They caused disunity and destruction in the church. You understand that that many churches in our culture and in the world have gone through division and strife and, and have split because people go out into churches speaking with authority that they don't have. You know, there are only two institutions in the entire world in the history of man that God has set up. There's only two. God doesn't have a government system that he set up. He's like, choose your own government, right? See how that works. He doesn't have a structure for business, right? He's got principles, but there's lots of different ways. He doesn't have an economic system that God says in Scripture, this is the way economically things are supposed to work. He gives us lots of freedoms in lots of different areas. But there are two, two institutions that God himself designed, and those are this, the family and the church, because the church is a family. Those are the only two. 
He designed them. It's his idea. If you want to, like, we didn't invent how our church set up. It's not that we have elders because we thought, hey, it would be great to have elders, right? Pastors, we didn't come up with that idea. We're like, hey, let's have a shepherd, pastors over the top of. We didn't come up with that. And the way that we didn't come up with the idea that every member is a minister, we didn't come up with that idea. This was God's. God designed this. He set it up. And God, when he designed the family, and when he designed the church, there is authority structure. God set that up. And he's, he says we need to honor it. And when we don't honor it, we usurp it. And when we usurp it, we cause division. We fight against the very thing we're pretending to support. I'll tell you that in my experience as a pastor, I have had probably one of the biggest heartaches and frustrations is when we have those come into our church from the outside who haven't been set apart by the congregation, who haven't looked into their lives and seen that the, the legitimacy of their faith. There's been no hands laid over them, no, no prayers over them. They haven't been ordained and set apart and given authority because they, their lives and their doctrine have proven that they not only know the Lord, but they love the flock, and therefore the flock says, we trust you. But they don't have any of that. They come in from the outside with no obligation to care for you and come in and start just putting a little bit of question marks, saying, well, don't follow them, follow me. They don't love you. Because of that, they destroy the family. They break it apart. And it makes me mad. And it should make you angry too. Can you imagine, those of you who are married, if one day, you know, you, you're married to your spouse and one day they, they bring in somebody else. Say, well, they were kind of talking to me and I think I kind of want to love them. I'm going to follow them. Like, that's not okay. It's not okay. Or if some other people came over to your house and said, I'm going to take, I'm gonna, your kid brings over some other parents. I'm going to listen to them now. Not all right. Is church leadership perfect? No. But that's why there's an anointing. That's why there, we lay on hands. That's why we ordain. That's why that those who take on the pastorate, those who become elders, recognize there's a fearful calling in our life. There's a day that I will stand before God and give an account to your soul, which is why I pray for you every week with fear why I care for you. That's what motivates me outside of my complacency when I see you going into sin that causes me to go and pursue you because I love you, but also God loves you and he, he holds me accountable. Those who don't have authority do not have that. When we believe that God is the ultimate authority in the church and we have to trust his leadership and we have to follow that, if the early church, these uh, believers from Jerusalem, you know, drew, uh, Jerusalem had done that, if they had gone to the church, the leadership, and talked to them, there wouldn't have been a split, would there? They could have gone and said, we have questions about the doctrine, and the leadership would have said, this is why we're accepting these Gentiles. And they would have reasons. In the same way, I'm not perfect. I know that's why I need your prayers. I, and then how many times in the Word does it tell you, pray for your leaders? Because I'm not perfect. Your elders aren't perfect. We're flawed men. We're, but we've been given the task, and that's why we pray. We depend upon the Holy Spirit. We ask for wisdom, but we depend upon you to be praying for us. At the same time, if you feel that we are missing something, we depend upon you to come bring the word to us so that we can discuss it, just like the church in Jerusalem did. We will look at it sincerely, because the last thing I want to do is lead any one of you to stray. I have to 
give an account for that. Isn't it amazing how those who usurp the church rarely come to leadership? They always just kind of blend into the congregation. And oftentimes they come personally, but sometimes they come through other ways, like through radio, or sometimes through the internet, or sometimes through books. And they lead and cause all kinds of, of division in the body of Christ, and it's not healthy. And when a church has this kind of artificial authority, it overcomes itself. It cannot overcome the culture. So the first thing we have to do is we want to be a church that's like the first church, a church that overcomes. We begin with this. If we don't accept artificial authority, and that begins with here in the church, but also begins as those of us in leadership. Artificial authority is I'm not the end all and be all. I listen to those who, who disagree with me, and I'll go to God's word and we pray. And we seek what God has to say on things. and We follow him. So the first thing we have to recognize, we can't accept artificial authority. The second thing that we find is that we can't accept an artificial gospel. Right? This is something that's huge. Throughout church history, it's caused all kinds of problems. It is that what they did is, what the, uh, the pharisaical Christians were trying to do is they were trying to add things to the gospel. You were saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, plus you need to be a Jew. But that's not the gospel. What is the gospel? It starts with this. It says, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Isn't that amazing how the gospel begins? It's not about you. It's about him. That we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Salvation doesn't come through any other things. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, in him alone. Two things, Lord and Savior, those are the two things that we are saved by our faith in, in him. And as we follow him, he transforms us from the inside out to become a blessing in the world. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not to add to that. We're not to take anything away from that. Now, it says that we're saved by God's grace through faith. Faith needs to be expressed, doesn't it? Right? It says in the Word that faith without any kind of works is useless. Well, that makes sense. Like, if I said, you know, uh, that, uh, that fan above your head is about to fall, right, and you believe that what I say is true, right, you have faith that I'm telling you the truth about that, you're going to move right? Your faith will be put to action so you will step out of the way. If you say, well, Aaron, I believe you, but you don't move, boom, my, your faith did zero for you. It is the same way with our soul. If we believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, then that faith compels us to express it. And how are we supposed to? How does the Bible tell us to express our faith? It says to believe in him, right? It says we're supposed to trust him even when we have doubts. That's what belief is all about, trusting that it's true, that he's my Lord and Savior. I'm supposed to confess him. It means I'm going to identify with Jesus. Even when I know I'm not doing a great job, I still say, you know, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. I, I'm standing with Jesus. I'm assigned with him. I'm, I'm with him. I'm supposed to repent, which means I start to follow him as my Lord because he's my Savior. And I do what he asks me to do. That's repentance. Or to be baptized, be born again, right? Be, be immersed in water as a as a sign, as an expression of faith that I am born again, I'm his now, my sins have been washed away, right? I'm a fresh start, I'm part of the kingdom, I'm part of his family. I'm supposed to be baptized as faith, and we're also supposed to be discipled. I'm supposed to grow up in him and teach others how to grow up in him. All of these expressions of faith, saved by God's grace through faith. Now, it's interesting that those are things that we're supposed to do, but those acts themselves don't save us, do they? Well, if, for example, does a sinner's prayer save anybody? Let's say that you only speak Chinese, and then I, I teach you to say the Lord's Prayer, but you don't know what it means. You don't believe it. Is that going to save you? 
No, it's no hocus pocus words. You can't trick somebody into it. But when I pray a prayer to God as an expression of faith, there's power, isn't it? When I declare him to be Lord in my life, there's power there. How about this? What if you, what if you confess Jesus as Lord? You've got all the bumper stickers. You have an I'm with Jesus t-shirt, right? All the time you're walking around saying, bless you, brother, and all that kind of stuff, but you don't believe him? Is standing with Jesus going to be what saves you? The word of God itself says it's not the way. He says in the end, there are going to be people who say, I called you Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, I never knew you. Confession doesn't save. Repentance? What if I follow every single thing in the Bible? I, I come to a point in my life and say, that's a wise way to live. Not as an expression of faith, not because Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but just because I think that's a better way to live. It'll make my life better, and it will. And so I do that. Will I be saved because I follow the word of God so closely? Am I saved by my repentance? No. I'm saved by God's grace through faith. If my, by faith I start following God, there's power in that. Otherwise, it just makes me legalistic. How about baptism? Is there something magic about the water? Can I just take you down to the lake and just dunk you? Like if, if I believe that there was something like magic about the water, that's the most, most moral thing to do is to take people and just mass baptize them, right? But there's nothing magic about the water. If you don't believe, you're not being baptized by faith. It's just a weird bath, right? Does nothing. How about being discipled? I want to be in a church and part of a church, but I'm not being there because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I just like the, I like the fellowship. Does that save me? No. No, it does not. It just makes you part of the fellowship. But as an expression of faith, it is powerful, isn't it? Saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior. We cannot add to that gospel and we cannot take away. And so we cannot accept artificial gospels, which is why Peter, when addressing everyone, he says, now then, we talking to the pharisaical Christians. He says, why do you try to test God, putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of God, a grace of our Lord Jesus, that we are saved, just as they are. Saved by God's grace through faith. That is the gospel. So let us accept no substitute. Right? And so the last thing that we have to do, we recognize the third uh, portion of it, is we don't want to accept this, an artificial conversion. And this is the part when we read this passage, most Christians, when we read this, they're like, what? That letter from the, the Council of Jerusalem, it has this, this tag at the end of it. It says, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Do you ever wonder, like, what on earth? Isn't that adding stuff to the gospel? No, they're not saying you're saved by these things, but they're saying if you are a Christian, there is a way in Christ. There is a way, there is a standard that we're supposed to start living into. And what is this standard? What are the three things this really calls us into that we're supposed to honor once we become Christian? The first thing that we're called to, it says you're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. This talks about spiritual purity. Now, in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, Paul gives us some greater understanding on this and talks about it's not the meat. The meat's not the issue. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says, listen, meat sacrificed to idols is just meat that's sacrificed. There's no such things as other gods. So it's just it's sacrificed to an imaginary thing. There's nothing like spiritual power on that meat. No, like, ooh, that meat's like powerful. So don't worry about that. And uh, so it's like, like there's something special with the meat. The meat's just dead meat that you can cook. Romans 14 says it's also not the meat. It has to do with, with how God's leading you, right? It says, listen, uh, how, how, why meat sacrifice, I was kind of how it was done, is people would bring a sacrifice to these pagan um, 
sacrifice areas, and they would sacrifice the meat. They'd eat some of it, part of it like a little fellowship meal, a part of the, the sacrifice, and the rest of it they would take out back and they would sell as a discount. They got discounted meat, right? And what they would do is in the meat that they got sold, uh, they would take that money and they would use it to help fund their false religion. Now, some Christians were like, I can't let my money go to funding this false religion. My conscience won't allow me to do that. So I'm not going to eat this meat that was sacrificed to an idol. So I'm not going to do it. Other Christians were like, those are false gods. And if I can save some money on this, yeah, I'll take the bargain meat. And I'll just laugh all the way home at these stupid pagans, right? That's what they were doing. So you had these two different things. Well, for those that uh, would violate their conscience, Romans 14 says, don't eat the meat. For those, if it doesn't violate your conscience, you're like, yeah, I can get discounted meat. I'm not, I don't, I'm not participating in the pagan worship. Fine. He says, go buy it. Get your discount hamburger, right? Do it. It says this, respect your brother or sister. If you can buy the discounted meat, don't invite your, your friend over. It violates their conscience and force them to eat it. Or if, if it violates your conscience to be, have any part of that meat, don't look down your nose at the person that can buy discount meat. It's not what it's about. It's like you want to be pure before God. That's what it talks about. It's not the meat. But, this is, but what they're writing about here is a different issue. Remember before they sell the meat, after they, had a, after they made the sacrifice, they would eat some of the meat as part of the, uh, the ritual? So oftentimes it would be things like this. Uh, these, these Gentile families come from these pagan cultures, and they grew up their entire life. There was ritual and religion, and they would go to the temple, and they would bring their sacrifice, and they would kill it, and then they would have this, this celebration or whatever it was. Uh, uh, they would have their little picnic, their, their fellowship meal from the meat that they had sacrificed as part of their worship. And so it might be a coming-of-age type of, of thing or something as far as saying we want to have good rain or whatever it was. They would participate in the, the, the pagan worship, and then what was left over, they would sell. This is talking about the meat that was being uh, eaten as part of the celebration. Saying here, don't do that, right? Uh, you don't want to, uh, I can push the button. It says we don't want to be part of those pagan celebrations. What that means for us is like uh, as a Christian, um, as a believer, uh, if, if I stepped away from, I don't know, let's say New Age, right? I stepped away from that, and I've got family that still very much believes in those types of things, and they'll say, hey, uh, your niece or your nephew is going to have this kind of coming of age type of thing, right? We want you to come participate in it. You say, I can't. We've got to keep our faith pure. That's why Christians, like when I was a teenager, they would, uh, remember kids would come out and they'd have these Ouija boards. But I was a Christian by the time I was 17, right? And when they would pull out a Ouija board, for me, I was like, I can't participate in that because it's participating in something that is contradictory to my belief. I can't mix my faith with other things. We're supposed to stay spiritually pure. And that was the standard for the Gentile believers, stay spiritually pure. The second one, from the blood of uh, meat str- of strangled animals, What's the deal with that? Well, it's moral purity, as you see. How so? Well, do you know that oftentimes we think of, uh, when we look into the word and we see things like uh, kosher, how you're supposed to kill the meat as the blood is drained out and all that, we think that's part of the Old Testament covenant, uh, part of the, 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 uh, uh, the law that was there for uh, just uh, part of the cultural law of Israel. But it wasn't. Do you know that it says we're not supposed to eat meat? It actually comes, uh, blood comes from even Genesis after uh, the flood. In Genesis 9, uh, God, uh, after he gets done wiping the world clean from all, all the wicked people, and Noah gets off the boat, right, and says, you get a fresh start, and he sets up a new covenant with humanity through Noah. And he says, 
a couple things. One, I'm not going not gonna to destroy the world with the flood again, so don't worry about that. Right? You're going you're gonna to receive a different kind of grace from this point on. Then he gives us the rainbow as a reminder that we're not going to suffer a, a world destroyed by a flood in that same way. But he says, but here's some things that you need to do. And one of those is not to eat blood. Why? Because God said that the life is in the blood. Does that make sense to me? No. It makes no sense to me, but God said it, right? So following what God said, we just don't eat blood. Well, if you were a pagan, you were a Gentile, and you become a Christian, how would you know that? Do you have the scriptures that you would know what God said to Noah? No. Which is why a lot of those pagan cultures had things like blood puddings and stuff like that. They had no concept. And so they would be, their part of their whole culture was just already in violation to some of God's morals. And what this is saying is you have to go into the scripture and find God's morals. If you want to be a Christian, you have to abide by God's moral standards. And that's part of it. No blood from meat from strangled animals. No blood. But I think it goes beyond that, doesn't it? That we don't pick up our morals anymore from our culture. That our morals, if you are a Gentile and you're becoming a, a Christian, you're following Jesus and you're saying his law, his way, his morals. Now, in the Old Testament, it has two different kinds of law. There's ceremonial law and there's moral law. There's both. And because the Jewish people were called apart by God, a lot of times the moral law and the ceremonial law were mixed. So you'll find things like don't murder somebody right next to don't wear a cotton poly blend. Right? And so you find these things mixed up, but they're not hard to discern, like one of those moral ones not. I mean, there are a few areas where Christians have debated over the past, but overall, we pretty much understand there's the moral law and there's a ceremonial law. But the, what the early church says, you don't have to follow the ceremonial law. That doesn't save anybody, but the moral law still exists. And we as Christians, we find our morals here, not out there. And that's where we have to begin. We have to be a morally pure people. We have to agree what God says is right and true. We live by Judeo-Christian ethic that comes from a biblical understanding of morality. So if you want to be a Christian, you have to follow God's ways. The third thing that we're supposed to be, not just uh, spiritually pure and morally pure, but the last one, it says we're to abstain from sexual immorality. We're called to sexual purity. What were the two things, the two institutions that God decided to, the only two that he made? It's the church and the family, right? And family really deals with our sexual uh, morality and also immorality. Do you know that we're not in the first age in history that's struggling with things like homosexuality, homosexual marriage, trans, uh, transgenderism, uh, bestiality, pedophilia? Do you know that ancient societies struggled with these very issues a lot and it caused them all kinds of issues and pain? The really, we've had 2,000-year gap where we've had to worry about those because we've been in the Christian age. We've had an understanding. We agreed with God, said, the way that you design family is the right way, that there's a, there's a standard of sexual purity, that God made people male and female, and, and there is a standard within that, and sex is designed to be within the family between a husband and a wife and nowhere else. We believe that. You know what? What I just said right there, probably going to be kicked off of the web because that's considered hate speech now. I, ridiculous. But this is God's standard. He said, this is the way that it's supposed to be. He said, the rest of the world doesn't have to follow that. But if you want to follow Jesus, you follow it. And don't just tell other people to follow it. You follow it. You stick with God's spiritual, uh, sexual purity. You do it. If you're single, be sexually pure. If you're married, be sexually pure. Right? If you're a widow, be sexually pure. That's what we're called to. And he's given us a standard. 
And this is what it says. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to, if you want to call him Savior, you have to call him Lord, right? We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord means he has the right to tell us what to do. False conversion has told Christians this. You're saved by God's grace and Jesus as your Savior. He loves you the way you are. Just go out and live your life however you want to live. That's a false gospel, and it doesn't save anybody. We're saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, right? That's our faith. It's got to be in him as Lord and Savior. We want to follow him. This is the standard. Now, do you have to do it perfectly? No, but we're called to it. Right? There are times in, in our lives, and you see the apostles didn't do all these things perfectly, and neither will we, but we have to recognize when we're out of line with these, that we are out of line, that God is right. That's why there's repentance. That's why there's the Holy Spirit. That's why we have a church to help us. That's why you have church leadership to help you. That's why we have a community here to help us. There's a different, a new way. If you want to be in Christ, we need to, to make sure that we are, we are committed to spiritual maturity, our purity, moral purity, and sexual purity. Now, all of these things really go into the bigger picture of the fact that we are, well, this application, that as the church, these, these things, a church that overcomes as a foundation, a pure foundation, the Christian faith must have nothing artificial added. Right? I'm not going to add other things to it. We're to, expect, we're to uh, not to accept artificial authority. We're going we're to trust the church, lead the church the way that God has designed it. We're, gonna accept our, we're not going to accept the artificial gospels. We're not going to say you're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus plus or in Jesus minus. We're also not going to accept artificial conversion. A church that is committed to Christ and these things has the foundation then to grow and to not just to have God's kingdom come onto this earth, but to overcome. This is where we begin. So where does it begin with you? You know, the Word of God does warn us many times. It says, don't come to the Word and then leave it unchanged. Every time we come to the Word of God, there has to be some type of next step, right? Some type of something that we're following the Lord. It's otherwise, it's like for the person who, you know, has a, a bunch of mustard on their face. They see themselves in a mirror and like, hey, I got mustard on my face. And then they turn away and forget they have mustard on their face. And they wonder why everyone laughs at them. Don't be that person. We want to come to the Word of God, and we want to take steps and follow Him. And so that's why in the back of your connection card, I encourage you to take it out now. I've got some next steps for you. In this, as a congregation, to follow God with nothing artificial added. Here are some things that maybe you can do. Maybe this week you say, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to memorize Acts 20.24. Right? Start taking that Word of God, put in your life. This Word of God reminds us that it's not about me, it's about Jesus. That's really where it begins, doesn't it? We have to start there. So this is maybe where you begin. So I'm going to start memorizing this. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to use it as my prayer. Or how about this? Maybe what you want to do this week, you're going to read Acts 15 for yourself. You taught, heard me talk about it. Now you read it. See what God's word speaks into your heart and your life. Or how about this? Maybe what you want to do is you want to embrace genuine faith. Maybe in your life you recognize there's some areas that you've had some artificial stuff that maybe you've been accepting, maybe even grown a taste for. Artificial authority might be there. Maybe it's this artificial gospel where you've only accepted people as Christians who, who match what you think should be Christian and you've added things to the gospel. Or maybe you've been accepting people as believers who, but don't fill up with, don't, don't follow the gospel. They're not saved by God's grace through faith. Maybe I'd say, you know, I'm going to embrace this. Or maybe you had an artificial conversion or accepted that. You said, well, I don't have to be spiritually pure. I don't need to be morally pure. I don't need to be sexually pure. I'll say, the Word of God is calling us to a true faith, a genuine faith. So maybe this week you begin, you say, I'm committing myself to that, to that. And if that's you, I want to know because I can pray for you. I can help you. 
Or maybe you want to do is you want to make church a priority this summer. Why do I write that? Summer is a hard time to come to church. I know a lot of us are working, but you know what? God called us a family. So this is, we want to worship God. We want to have our life centered around him. Make this a priority because you make God a priority. Say he's my Lord and my Savior. Make it a priority. And say, I'm going to do that. And you know what? The enemy's going to try to stop you, which is why I'm going to be praying for you. So maybe there's something else you need to commit to. Write it down. If you've got another commitment, there's some other on the other side. Let me know. If you've got a prayer request, let me know. I do. I pray for you every week. It's amazing how we've seen God answer prayer and do amazing things. Let me care for you. Please write down your prayers, and I'll be joining you with them this week. In just a second, we're going to take our offering. As we take our offering, what I'd like you to do, drop your, your tithes and your gifts. There's an envelope in your, in your, in, uh, your bulletin that you can use, but drop that in the basket. And as you do, worship God through your, through your talent or through your treasure. But at this, I want you to worship God with your life. Make an expression. Use this as a way of saying, God, I'm investing myself in your kingdom. I'm saying yes to you. All right, so let me pray for the commitments that you have to make today as well as a, a prayer for the offering and, and a blessing for you. And then we'll have the... Uh, Worship team, lead us, with some, lead us out with some good worship. Let's pray. Father God, you're King of kings, you're Lord of lords, and you're also our Savior, the only one who could save us. Saved by you, through you, <laughs> through our faith in you, and nothing else. Help us, Father, to be a church that is set purely uh, upon a solid rock. Lord, set our foundation right. I pray, God, that you would gift each of us, bless the congregation, every one of us that is here, with wisdom to have a full introspective look at our life. Help us to see the way that we're really living, Lord, and the areas that we're standing upon you. Show us those so that we can celebrate that and, and, and be encouraged in those areas. And Father, those areas that we're missing it, that we're standing on sand, that we've accepted false things, whether it's authority or false gospel or or Father, a weakened conversion. Father, I pray that you would reveal those to us so that we could change and give us the heart to do that. Lord, I pray also your protection and blessing over those that are here today as well. Grow and protect this body for your glory. I pray, Father, for the, for the commitments that we're making today. Lord, not as law, not as things that, that are worthless, but, Father, as expressions of faith that transform us, change us in this, so that we can become a blessing to those we live around in this community. Father, we also want to pray for the tithes and the offerings that we bring before you, Lord, again. Worshiping you, setting at the center of our life. Bless these offerings, Father. Use it to build your kingdom for your glory. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, our Lord. Amen.